Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So, Kellen, right now in the news, at least if you are collapse aware and paying attention, there's been a lot of conversation around avian influenza, H5N1. And for me personally, for some reason, it's been a, a special topic of interest. And today's episode, um, it's not going to be all about influenza, right? We've talked about zoonotics and how diseases move from animals to humans in past episodes. Um, but during this, uh, this, I think, unique and interesting time for pandemics, um, we've been referred a book. And I've seen this book thrown around a lot um, called Spillover. And so you and I have taken the time to read the book. Um, I think this episode is going to be really cool because we're going to have the chance to, number one, talk about this book, um, some of the things that we learned from it, but also dive in a little bit deeper into what's going on with bird flu, what the potentials are, and how all of that relates to collapse. Yeah, I think if we were to re rewind like 15 years ago and we were to say something like, hey, a pandemic could come our way and it has the potential to totally tear our society apart, people would be like, ah, get out of here. Come on, that sounds like, is this a novel? Yeah. Uh, but obviously, all of us having gone through the COVID pandemic, we recognize just how crazy it can get. Like, there are so many ways in which it just brings a society to its knees. 
all of the supply chain issues, all of the confusion, the misinformation, the disinformation, the, uh, you know, the tension, the way it divides people politically, the different responses to it, the way it, uh, you know, people kind of cling to fear and shut down businesses and don't let travelers into their country and all these things that we saw. And that's just like indirect effects, not to mention people actually getting sick and dying. And so in some ways, you know, obviously COVID was, was terrible and a lot of people died, but in some ways we're lucky that it wasn't much worse. And so, uh, we talked about how there's clear evidence that we are seeing an increase in infectious diseases. And, uh, there's a compelling case that we will continue to see that going forward. So I think this is really important for us to discuss a little bit deeper. Yeah, agreed. Uh, and I agree with what you're saying. It's not to downplay COVID. COVID was a big deal. And like you said, we learned a lot about what a pandemic can do. But the disease that we're talking about today, the potential disease, there's still so many unknowns. Um, but it, it highlights the fact that there's opportunity for viruses in the future to wreak much worse havoc. Um, some people have talked about avian influenza as being a hundred times potentially worse than COVID-19 was in economic fallout, you know, in deaths, in really furthering collapse. So I think with that, let's start with the book. Let's talk about um, the author a little bit. Let's figure out what this book was about, what we learned from it. And from there, we'll get more specific into uh, into the disease at hand. Well, the book that you mentioned and that we're going to cover a little bit about, um, it has received a lot of attention over the last decade. Um, the book is called Spillover, Animal Infections and the Next Human Pandemic. And what's really interesting to me about this is that it was written in 2012. Again, this was before people were really that worried about a pandemic. Um, but he talks about this lurking threat of zoonotic diseases and, and their potential for causing global chaos. And it almost feels prophetic because of what we've seen. But just because we've now gone through a COVID, uh, the, the pandemic, doesn't mean that we're out of the woods. In fact, there's a likelihood that we will see more and more of that kind of thing going forward. And that COVID uh, could exacerbate and make those worse because of what COVID does to like our immune systems and, and that type of thing. Not to mention what it's done to the public perception of pandemics. We'll talk about that more later, but just the way that people think about disease. In some ways, you know, I think about, like you said, 10 years ago, if we had talked about a pandemic, I would have rolled my eyes. It sounds so far-fetched and, you know, this epic thing. Um, and I think for a lot of people, it's been eye-opening. For me, it has been. For other people, it's sent them in the opposite direction. If they hear about a pandemic, they are going to roll their eyes even harder right? Because, um, of the misinformation. So, yeah, I agree. Um, so getting into the book, the author, by the way, his name is David Quammen and, um, he's, he's not a scientist, you know, he, he's a science nature and travel writer. Um, but he 
the way he has written the book, he has done so much research. You read it and you think like he is an expert in this field. And part of the reason that he's able to write so well and this book is so critically acclaimed is because he relies on experts. He's, he has, um, dived deep with the people that know what they're talking about. And he explains things, uh, from a very scientific standpoint. But he does it in a way that's a little more palatable than just reading like a textbook. It's more of a journalistic approach. So, um, as, as I was reading through, I was fascinated, uh, as he just early on in the book kind of lists some of the zoonotic diseases. I'll give you a few examples. So Ebola, the bubonic plague, Spanish influenza, which I mean, that caused like 50 million deaths. Um, all influenzas, <laughs> monkeypox, tuberculosis, West Nile fever, Lyme disease, anthrax, rabies, AIDS, you know, foot and mouth disease. Like you, as you read through the list, you think, wow, like almost all the diseases that we worry about, uh, come from animals. And it turns out that it's true. The majority, in fact, roughly 60% of infectious diseases that either routinely cross over from animals or, or just have recently crossed over from animals to us, 60% of the infectious diseases that we have experienced as humans are zoonotic diseases. You know, that leads to, I think, a really central theme of the book, something that he brings up a lot is that we as humans often view ourselves as separate from the animal kingdom, but we are literally animals. Like, we are mammals, right? So, it's we talk about spillover from animals to humans, but he really makes it clear that we're just another animal. And so, as disease spreads amongst animals, it's not like some huge feat for it to make its way to us. It's it's natural. Um, we, we're inclined to receive these diseases in a lot of the same ways or worse ways than, than many other animals do. Yeah, that's spot on. And, you know, it's, it's easier often for diseases to cross over from animals that are most similar to us. So like there are diseases that carry over from primates very frequently but we'll talk about some of the different ways that they can cross over or spill over from different types of species. So the book, he gets very descriptive. Um, you know, obviously there's, there's bacterial diseases, fungal diseases. A lot of it's focused on viruses. Um, but he kind of takes these case studies and walks through the chronology of what happened and goes step by step and showing like, Here's how it presented itself and how they even found out that there was a problem and what researchers did to try and track it down. So he starts out, he goes through um, a disease called Hendra uh, and tells this whole story about it with um, as horses started dying and then there were some human infections. And he was very graphic. He He explains very well what those deaths include, what the symptoms are, and kind of how they that presented itself to humans and inhumans when it crossed over. Yeah, it is graphic as he's talking about like 
this horse owner who's who's their horse is spasming and and starts like spewing and snorting blood and it's spraying on the person and it it's graphic um he goes into ebola and in that case you hear a lot about primates apes gorillas um bats um malaria and that's where you, you obviously with malaria there's a lot of talk about mosquitoes he gets into sars lyme disease herpes b q fever uh npv there's a handful of others um and then at one point he talks about what he calls the last big one and that's hiv aids uh and and he does that to kind of emphasize that zoonotic diseases don't always stay like isolated uh in a small pocket you think of all of the damage all of the deaths from aids and it has been devastating to humans uh at the end he talks about the next big one so we're going to get to that but there are some things that i learned reading through the book that i thought would be worth sharing i think it'll give a lot of context especially as we talk about like you mentioned bird flu so what i've learned is that we know a lot about these diseases there's been so much research and so many findings, and it's amazing what we're able to track and predict. And yet, we know very little. You know, before, it feels like maybe we had one tiny little corner of a puzzle piece. Now we've got like two or three puzzle pieces, but it's a 10,000-piece puzzle. There's so much that we don't know, and there's a few reasons for that. So at one point in the book, he talks about mathematical modeling and how important that is for understanding diseases and predicting diseases. So think about a disease. Maybe it's not a zoonotic disease. And it's just a, a disease that's specific to one species. Uh, some of the factors that would need to be considered in order to create these mathematical models. One would be what they call cr critical community size. And that's going to factor in like transmission efficiency. So how like infectious the disease is, how likely it is to transmit from uh, one member of this species to another. Uh, virulence, which is basically how harmful or deadly it is. The density of the population that it's spreading within. You know, does being infected once mean that you develop like a lifetime of immunity or can you be infected over and over again? So those are complicated things to figure out, and you're trying to, to model all of that together. You can see just how difficult that would be. But then think of how much more difficult it is when you're talking about modeling and trying to stop a zoonotic disease. And there's a few reasons for that. One term that I wasn't as familiar with that is introduced in the book is what's called a reservoir host. So this is a host uh, that, you know, maybe a certain type of animal that carries the disease, um, but they might suffer only mild symptoms. If any, right? Yeah, or maybe they don't show any symptoms at all. So this disease is able to thrive within this host and kind of just tranquilly, uh, you know, 
propagate and reproduce, um, but you're not really seeing evidence of it. And so one example, I think, from the book would be like with Hendra, which is what he opens the book with. The reservoir host was bats, right? Yeah. They carried the disease. It took them forever to figure out who the reservoir was. It was crucial that they found that out so they would know where it was coming from. But the bats were fine. They would pass it around, carry it. It would just sit and circulate through bat uh, populations. And then every once in a while, that would introduce itself into a different um, a different type of animal. Yeah. And what's especially challenging about that is it's not just like all bats. It might be very specific breeds of bat right, or species of bat. You can imagine how challenging that is. The word that he uses often in the book is like hiding. A disease is just able to hide for a long time. Because how are you going to find it if no animal populations are showing symptoms? Right. You're not just randomly, you know, there's hundreds of billions of animals out there. Are we just out here testing enough of a sample size to find these diseases and where they're hiding? And not that, likely. That, yeah. And that's exactly what they often have to try to do. So if a disease emerges in a certain area... Then, you know, they're trying to collect like rodents and birds and, uh, you know, uh, other mammals like larger mammals. And uh, that's a challenging process because usually they're having to either tranquilize them and extract blood or they're having to actually kill the animal and cut them open. Sometimes the disease manifests in different ways and so they have to examine different organs or they're just testing the blood to look for different for for antibodies to the disease. But just imagine how challenging that is to identify the reservoir host. It's not just a, an expensive or a time-consuming, difficult process. It's also a dangerous one. You can't just be out there elbow deep in animal <laughs> when there could potentially be spreading a, a deadly and contagious disease. That's exactly it. And uh, there's actually a point in the book where multiple examples are given of uh, researchers who accidentally, like a tiny nick, like barely puncture the skin through their glove, uh, you know, with with a syringe or something right. like that. And all of a sudden they're infected and they're getting sick. Well, they talk about even if it wasn't a syringe, just an open a break in the skin is what they say. It doesn't even have to be a cut, but just any little part that um, is not perfectly intact skin can introduce the virus, and that happens to researchers often. Yeah, and that's where it's another area of complication, just another factor. Some of these diseases can be airborne, right? Like tiny little water droplets in the air, you might breathe it in, and that's how you can contract the disease. Others, it's uh, you know, if it enters your bloodstream, others, it's if like you consume the animal, you ingest it, other diseases are sexually tr transmitted. Right. And so trying to figure out how a disease actually makes it from one animal to another, or from an animal to a person or from a person to a person is a whole nother challenge. Yeah. I remember <clears throat> in that part of the book, it talks about how, for example, um, something that might be transmitted via aerosol droplets might require more. So like an influenza might require a heavier load in order, a viral load in order for you to um, get sick with it. Whereas something like Ebola, it could literally be on a syringe 
that was used three days ago and like there's just the tiniest tiniest amount of disease on there and the tiniest cut on your skin that only you know was so brief and you can contract Ebola and die so yeah that that difference in viral load I think is an interesting aspect of it it is very interesting and it's also interesting because um you know different species have different thresholds for how much of a particular virus they have to be exposed to before they get infected. So that leads to another term. Uh, we talked about reservoir hosts. Uh, there are also amplifier hosts. So an amplifier host is one in which the virus like replicates often at an accelerated rate and like spews forth at extremely high levels. So one of the examples, I can't remember all the different animals they were talking about, but they said with pigs, with swine, they were all of their breathing and snorting. They were expelling this virus into the air at 30 times the rate of other infected animals. So in this case, pigs were amplifier hosts. And I believe the other animals that they were talking about, it wasn't like a small animal that you wouldn't expect to be putting a lot off. It was like cows, you know, which is a bigger animal and which you might think are just as gross and, and you know, able to spew it out with their burps and all the different things that they're doing. And yet a pig was emitting 30 times the amount. Yeah. So imagine imagine you've got a disease that can infect humans, but humans have a pretty high threshold for how much of it they have to be exposed to in order to actually get infected. So the reservoir host isn't expelling much of the disease. A human uh, probably won't get infected from the reservoir host, but a amplifier host gets infected and then they are, you know, the ones that are transmitting the disease to a human in that case. So an amplifier host becomes the intermediary between the reservoir host and like the other species. So we're talking about like multiple layers here. If you're trying to track down a disease, it's hard enough to figure out like where a human contracted a disease from. Oh, you find out it came from this animal. Oh, but really that's not, the main culprit turns out they're just the amplifier and you've still got to go find the reservoir host. You can see the complications, right? Oh yeah, for sure. Okay. And then another term is vector hosts. So a vector or, or sometimes they're just called vectors, but they're the ones that don't even get infected, but they might simply pass the disease from one animal to another. An example of this, often mosquitoes, they just carry a disease with them from one animal to the next, even though the mosquito doesn't actually get infected by the disease. Sure. So there's another layer, another complication. So if you can identify the reservoir, the reservoir host, um, you know what animal it is and you know where that animal lives and where it doesn't live, then you can be better able to predict where the next point of spillover might take place. Uh, but again, in order, think of all the resources it takes to be able to be properly equipped as, as a researcher to do this safely and go out and trap the animals, tranquilize them, 
get their blood or kill them and cut them open. Um, and oftentimes they don't know exactly where to start. Uh, so it, it can become a huge challenge. And what I found really interesting is that with all of these case studies that the author steps through in the book, it almost always starts the same way that we're seeing in current events right now with the bird flu. I'm not saying the bird flu is going to be the next pandemic. I know we're going to talk about this soon, but it'll be a case where they just see like a bunch of a certain type of bird is suddenly dying or they see there's a group of apes in a remote location that they find dead. And that's like the first clue that something is happening. Um, you know, one person dies in a remote village and they're able to go find that it started with a certain animal population that was getting hit by the disease first. And keep in mind, once a disease starts gaining momentum, once it starts kind of flaring up and there's more infections, every infection gives that many more opportunities for a disease, uh, you know, a virus to mutate. So if it's one animal population that's getting hit really hard and all these animals are dying and it's spreading to more animals, it might spill over into a different species uh, and maybe from that species to another. And as that's happening, that's just that many more opportunities for mutation, which would then cause it to be transmittable to humans. That's particularly the case with there are, you know, DNA viruses and RNA viruses. RNA ones are the ones that are more likely to mutate in a way that's dangerous. All right. So hopefully that gives some context for why zoonotic diseases, first of all, are fascinating. Also why they're very dangerous and why it's just such a challenge to really track them down and understand them. Like Ebola is something that there are still so many unanswered questions about. Right. And and we've been fighting it for decades. Yeah. All these years later, and it doesn't feel like there's been that much ground gained on the whole thing. There's still more questions than answers. Yeah. And the whole time you're trying to figure it out, the game's always changing, right? right. It might have mutated, and now it's other species that are carrying it. Yeah. Okay. So it's important to call out, I mentioned that we are seeing an increase in infectious diseases, particularly zoonotic diseases. And I think we need to speak to why that's the case. In the context of collapse, this is a hugely important topic. We need to understand why why we're anticipating we will see more and more of this. Really what it comes down to is that we are disrupting, you know, thousands or even millions of species we're wreaking havoc on ecosystems we're going in we're clearing land you know the way we're doing modern agriculture uh, we're just being exposed to all these species and oftentimes they're unknown species and they have all sorts of bacterial and fungal and viral diseases and so like you go clear some trees and there's all these plant and animal species uh it, it's almost like you knock all that down and the, it kicks up all the dust that then has an opportunity to infect humans and it's it's not as like straightforward as that it's not like it's just dust that floats in the air all of a sudden um 
But normally, before we were doing all this disruption, a disease just stays contained within a limited region. But now that we are disrupting all these ecosystems, then combine that with the fact that, um, you know, the book talks about at the time, 2012 was when it was published. It said the population of humans has doubled within the last 25 years. And we know it's only gone up since then. Yeah, I think in 2012 when he wrote it, he mentioned that there was 7 billion people. And here we are 10 years later with 8 billion people. Yeah. It's almost like we are an infectious disease on the planet. <laughs> but what that means is that there is just an abundance, this huge population. We are an exploding population of potential hosts. And as the virus is looking, you know, it's not like a virus has any motives. Uh, but Other than to survive. Yeah, to survive, to thrive, to reproduce. And so a virus is always looking for a new host where it can and habit. So then combine that with the fact that, you know, we've got things like pollution. Uh, we have areas that are very overpopulated in which humans are living extremely close together. Uh, we have the fact that we've got air travel and people are bouncing all around the globe and potentially spreading diseases with each other. Um, we have the fact that in many parts of the world, people are eating not only domesticated animals, but wild animals. Uh, there are so many things about the way we've built our modern society that uh, it's just facilitating the opportunity for diseases to thrive. Yeah, so sort of on that topic around um, why diseases are increasing, why pandemics are becoming more likely, um, they're pretty much all human fault, right? And like you, you just mentioned a few... Um, I read an article that listed out seven different reasons why. I'll just go through those seven real quick. Uh, the first one is humans and animals are having more frequent co contact, which is basically what you just explained. Um, number two was the pace of global travel and migration. So once it ever does uh, spill over to humans and become infectious, from there it is pretty incredibly hard to stop because we are such a, a dense populated, you know – we have these cities with massive amounts of people. There's constant migration and moving around amongst them. Three was the worsening climate crisis, which you mentioned. Four was not enough routine vaccination in kids. And they talked about how right now, um, even even before COVID-19, we were um, hitting this period where there was the least amount of vaccinations in kids in over 30 years. And since the pandemic, that's gotten worse because of all the misinformation, um, there's this sort of vaccine hesitancy that's happening. Um, and so as kids are getting less, uh, less vaccinated, it opens up the opportunity for even old diseases that we should have eradicated to come back um, and start again. Number five was the whole world is paying the price for years of neglecting developing countries' disease outbreaks. So in this section, it talked about the fact that, again, there are diseases that should have been eradicated, um, but because we didn't invest in helping developing countries with those vaccinations, with the infrastructure necessary to make that happen, they have sort of been the reservoirs. Um, the disease has been allowed to propagate there. And so then as you get other um, developed countries vaccinating less, 
it then allows for pockets of that to start to um, spread again. Six was our shifting perception of disease threats. So COVID-19, as I mentioned uh, early on in the episode, has had a big impact on people's perception of pandemics and what they are and what they mean and what the threat actually is. For a lot of people, COVID-19 was an eye-opener to the fact that pandemics are real. They're not fiction, right? It's not something you just read about in a novel or see in a fantasy show. Um, they are real and they happen. And so for some people, that was a, a sort of good thing to help learn about the importance of masking and of washing your hands and staying away, you know, social distancing and that type of thing. But for other people, due to political motives or conspiracy or whatever it is, it had the opposite effect. And it's made people become more wary of the idea of pandemics. During COVID-19, we had the uh, the idea of a plandemic, right? That's what people kept calling it. This idea that the government is doing this to control people and it's all this big conspiracy. And that is incredibly damaging. Um, you cannot understate the amount of misinformation that happened during the pandemic um, when it came to you know, ridiculing people for masking, when it came to um, vaccine misinformation, you would have people who were actual doctors um, who would sell out in order to spread this type of, of information. And I think um, the damage that did, it's going to have a serious effect. If there were another pandemic, and we'll get to some examples of this already happening with the ideas of H5N1 and avian influenza, the reactions that people are already having to the thought of another pandemic, I just worry about what that would do um, to our ability to stop it. All right. And then the last, Oh, go ahead. Well, and I just wanted to jump in on that because uh, I think the perception of diseases and, and pandemics, not only is it uh, fallen to what you're talking about, where maybe there's a, a resistance to the idea and people feel like it's a conspiracy and it's just uh, governments conspiring against us or corporations out to make money, which by the way, I'm sure all of that is mixed in. Sure. <laughs> There's some truth in, in, in some of that. But even for me, like I never saw the COVID pandemic as a conspiracy, but outside of doing the research for these topics where we've covered infectious diseases, I've always just thought like oh, we're much safer than we used to be. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I never knew that infectious diseases were actually 
increasing. Um, I just thought like, yeah, we, we live in a very sheltered lifestyle now. We understand that it's important to wash our hands. We have modern medicine. Our food is a lot cleaner. Like, sure, people might get sick here and there, but I thought we were getting much better when the situation like you're highlighting here has actually gotten worse. Yeah, great point. And, you know, you just brought up something that I want to touch on a little deeper because it's something that I'm decently passionate about. And we talked about this recently in a bonus episode, um, but I think it might be relevant to talk about in this instance. You mentioned that um, both things can be true, that both there can be a deadly pandemic happening that's serious um, and that needs to be addressed. And at the same time, you can have corruption happening or problems happening, overreaction, whatever it is um, in th- that's happening in, in response. So in our bonus episode, when we brought this up, it was about climate change because you have this very clear dichotomy where it's like the left or, or Democrats talk about climate change in the U.S. and the right rejects it and says that it's not true because Democrats are using it for – it's all fake and made up because the Democrats want more money basically, right, or want control or whatever it is. But both could be true. There can be climate change and Democrats can be using it uh, for political gain or for control or for money or whatever it is. And the same thing is true here. We can both have a serious deadly disease that's a potential pandemic um, and we can have people who are abusing that, uh, the, the fact that it's happening. But that just because somebody's abusing it doesn't mean that the real threat isn't actually there. Yeah, exactly. Like with COVID, people are like, it's all just bogus because pharmaceutical companies are trying to make a bunch of money. Right, exactly. And it's like, no, it can be a real threat and pharmaceutical companies are trying to make a ton of money. Yeah, it's like vaccines are necessary and important, but pharmaceutical companies shouldn't be be charging as much money as they are or they shouldn't be not making it available to the entire world because they want to make more money. Like, yes, pharmaceutical companies are to blame for their actions and what they're doing in all of this, but their actions don't mean that the vaccines aren't necessary or that the pandemic itself isn't happening. Yeah. Great. Okay. Moving on to this last one. Number seven, we're still not sure how COVID has affected our immune systems. And so this, you know, these last two are kind of new as far as um, issues being brought up into the in, into pandemics. COVID uh, seems to be having an issue or creating an issue with immune systems, right? People with long COVID, there's still a lot of research to be done into this. And I'm, I, I didn't do that research uh, for this episode, but it is interesting to think that this pandemic we just went through could make a next pandemic worse or increase the mortality because our immune systems are less prepared to take that on. Great. Well, I, I love that you have taking the time to highlight that for us because that's what this is all about. Like we need to understand why this is becoming a bigger and bigger problem instead of uh, decreasing as an issue. I've talked about this book spillover and a lot of these things that I've learned, I think that gives us helpful context to understand zoonotic diseases specifically. Uh, But what I think is really interesting is that uh, the author spends a little bit of time right near the end of the book talking about what he thinks the next big one will be. Uh, You know, he says the last big one was AIDS. 
And he says, he suggests, here's what the next big one is likely to be. Um, and it turns out it is flu. Oh. Influenza. Imagine that. So there is a little bit of warning, by the way, about coronaviruses, oh. which is interesting because this was written in 2012. Yeah. But he spent some time talking about influenza A in particular. There are three different types of influenza. Um, with influenza A, it's, it's divided into subtypes based on two proteins on the surface of the virus. So there are, I'm going to get this wrong the way I pronounce this, but hemagglutinin uh, or H and neuraminidase. Again, I, yeah, you lost me, but I'm sure I pronounced it wrong. We'll get angry emails after this. Sure. <laughs> but that's the N, okay. right? So that's why you hear about like H5N1. Uh, there's these different categorizations. So, um, the reason why, and we'll, we'll get into that just a little bit, but the reason why influenza is so dangerous is because it has an extremely high rate of mutation, just like any, um, RNA virus. But you combine that with the fact that it has a very high propensity for what he calls reassortment. So, uh, you know, those hemagglutinins, there are 18 different subtypes and the neuraminidase. You can just call them H's and N's. That's fine. <laughs> and the N's, there are 11 different subtypes. Um, and they can snap apart at, at the points of demarcation between genes. And, and so it's kind of talked about as if they're railroad cars. And they can kind of snap apart and be rearranged. Yeah, in a different combination. It's a long way of saying that uh, the flu changes rapidly, frequently. Um, it has a high propensity to, to mutate and to change, which is why you have to get a new flu shot every year. Right. It's not the same as it was last year. Sure. Um, so at one point, they thought, you know, H1, H2, and H3 were the only diseases that could be transmitted by people to other people. Uh, but it gets really concerning, you know, when uh, not too many years passed, uh, they found that people were starting to die from an H5 strand of the virus, uh, which was the bird flu. And he, he talks about this in the book. Yes. The bird flu itself, H5N1? Yes. Okay. So these bird flus spread a lot among bird populations, uh, oftentimes because of, of bird droppings, their fecal matter. You think about where people keep like chickens, for example, and the chickens are just pooping everywhere. And then other chickens are coming around and pecking for their food. And so they're ingesting little bits of that fecal matter. It's the same oftentimes out in the wild. You think about like seagulls or any any type of bird. They're just hanging around pooping and eating off that same ground. You get things like, uh, you know, wild ducks that come into these rice fields in China 
where people are taking their domesticated ducks and the wild ducks spread this to the domesticated ducks. And then people take those ducks back home and have them right next to their chickens. And then it spreads to the chickens and it can just spread pretty rapidly among bird populations. Then you factor in that as people have all these domesticated birds, a lot of times chickens or other birds that they, they sell for food, not only are they ingesting them, they're eating the birds, but like humans are also going to be exposed to fecal matter from the birds, especially in, in oftentimes third world countries, or if, you know, they're being raised in a way where they're in close proximity to humans. So people can then contract these diseases if they've mutated the right way. Um, and, you know, get infected and die. But what is very scary with something like bird flu is the possibility of it being able to transmit from one human to another. And as, as it infects more and more animal populations, again, every time that's a chance for this virus to mutate in a way where that becomes a possibility. One, one last thing that I'll mention is that oftentimes the author calls this out, and I hadn't thought about this before, but oftentimes these kind of outbreaks take place in countries where there's a lot of political upheaval. So, uh, for example, at the time of writing this, he was focusing on Egypt, um, and there was a lot of political upheaval at the time, and there had been some outbreaks. And why that's so concerning is because that country can't pay attention to it mm -hmm. like they can't get in there and shut it down yeah they can't stop the spread of that disease because they've got all these other issues going on doctors from other countries aren't going to be flying into a active war zone or something like that to try and uh, investigate and they might not even know about it in the first place yeah so i think that's a major factor and it's especially relevant in the context of collapse because we know that political upheaval and, and these kind of issues will increase at the same time that we're seeing uh, more likelihood of these zoonotic diseases being transmitted to humans. Yeah, that's interesting. I had never thought about it that way. Well, I think this is a good point of the conversation to sort of shift towards what we're seeing happen today. Um, I think we're in a weird spot right now where you feel like if you are raising the alarm bells about H5N1, it like it might feel too early to do that um, because it may and there's probably a good chance that it's not going to result in anything at least not soon um but at the same time it feels like there is so much happening that it does feel like a matter of time and so it feels like this is something that should be talked about um but for us it's been a little bit weird to figure out what that line is in our bonus episodes we've been bringing up kind of week by week as there's been changes and everything um in one bonus episode, we said, we want to stop talking about this. We don't want to keep talking about bird flu. There's just keeps being new news that's relevant and scary and important to address. It's not like we're searching for reasons to talk about it. Um, and I think this episode is just a great opportunity to kind of air it all out. Um, just state where we're at, what uh, the potential looks like, what would happen if bird flu did become transmissible between humans there's a lot of questions there, a lot of answers that we don't have, um, but at least discussing the potential, I think, is important. 
So um, you have talked a little bit about um, H5N1, why it's scary, and why David Quammen feels like it could be the next big one. It's it's an old disease as far as like our knowledge about it. It's not something new. And this is something that I think a lot of people who want to spread misinformation tend to cling to. They say, well, this disease is like 25 years old as far as our knowledge of it. So why all of a sudden are we freaked out about it? Um, what is Why does the government want us to worry about it now? Or the, the WHO want us to worry about it now? It has been around since 1996. It was discovered in Hong Kong. Um, aquatic birds were the ones that were kind of spreading it around. And um, since then, over the last 20, was that 26 years, 27 years, um, it has spread to humans. It's not that humans don't get infected with the disease. They do, they just don't spread it to each other, right? The mortality rate is somewhere around 60%. I think officially it's somewhere around 57% in humans. So, a human would get it by interacting with, a, for the most part, it's been a bird who was infected with it. Um, for example, um, in Colorado recently, a prisoner was infected who was culling chickens who were infected. Um, in Peru, a nine-year-old girl was infected because she was dealing with her backyard chickens who had it. So that sort of direct contact, because we're so close to these animals, does mean that... It, 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 there's a chance that they get it, but they haven't spread it to anyone else. The disease itself, um, while it can be caught by humans, has not evolved in a way to be spread between them. One thing that I think is interesting is that this year with the avian flu, like normally bird flu, it'll come and go, it'll spread around a little bit, and then it gets quashed. It's usually a seasonal thing. It's not one that really persists. The last um, time that bird flu, last outbreak, it killed less than 300,000 domesticated birds, which still sounds like a lot, but that's kind of how, it, how it's been. It comes in these waves and then it disappears, comes and goes. With this current outbreak, um, it's killed over 50 million birds, right? And many of those have been from culling's because you don't want it to spread, so you kill the whole, um, the whole group of birds so that it doesn't spread outside of them. But it's been going for over a year now. Typically where it might last a few months, it has not uh, lasted just a few months. It's stuck around. They say they think that it's endemic in birds now, which means that it may never go away. It will continue to um, to spread, and basically it's found a home in birds. Um, it had It had been endemic in Europe mostly, but they think that the U.S. may be next and pretty soon for becoming an endemic disease. 50 million birds is so extreme. And I know as we've talked about this a little bit on our bonus episodes and we've updated, you know, as we've seen news articles coming out week after week, what's scary to me is the way that it's affecting other animal populations as well. So in a certain location, like hundreds of seals are found dead. And they've found that it has infected mink in another area and even like bears in another area. So all these other animal populations are also being infected. We don't know if it's being transmitted, you know, from that species of animal to another, uh, or if it, it's coming in another fashion. But the fact that it's kind of beginning to wreak havoc 
not only so extremely on birds, but also across the animal kingdom, uh, just means it's that much more likely it's, it can make its way to humans. And that's just it. That is, um, that is the reason why it becoming endemic and why it, it's stuck around so long now this time is so scary because it's being given all of these multitude of opportunities to, to mutate and to change, to evolve. Um, usually, because it's a numbers game, right? It's all about how many chances does it have? The actual probability, you know, of any one virus mutating and being able to go from um, birds to mammals and having that spillover is so low. But when we're talking about millions of birds now being infected, especially if they're in close quarters, it gives it that chance to change. The reassortment that you talked about, they call that kind of like a shortcut for evolution of um, of these viruses. And so if it gets into, like you said, a tightly packed mink farm and it is able to wreak havoc in there, that creates this incubation um, where it can, it can start to do that. Um, every time it infects a new flock or a new species or whatever it is, it gives it that much more of an opportunity to go through that process. And so uh, it has, like you said, it's, it's gone now to mammals and that's the big, I think the big wake up call for, um, epidemiologists and virologists looking into this saying, whoa, this thing's been around for 25 years. It is stuck to only transmitting between, um, between birds. And now all of a sudden we're getting 700 seals dying here and 700 seals dying over there. And um, all of these infected mink here. And like you said, it's not 100% certain yet that it is transmitting between them. Um, there does seem to be increasing evidence that that's the case. And many um, scientists, many epidemiologists think um, strongly that that's what's happened. Um, especially with the seals. They say it's very unlikely that a small, tightly packed group of 600 seals all got infected from eating birds, for example. Yeah. The likelihood just isn't. Like for each of them to contract it independently from a bird. <laughs> exactly. When you find this whole group of seals in the same location that have died. Yeah. It makes sense that it's spreading probably from seal to seal. And that's that's not just speculation from like your average person on the internet just chiming in on the topic. This is this is from those who have dedicated their life's work to this, right? And the evidence for that is not easy to find, uh, simply because you can't, um, you, you can't contact trace a seal like you can a person. You can ask a person, who have you had contact with? Um, have you been around any dead birds? Have you been dealing with, um, do you have chickens in your backyard sort of thing? Um, you can't do that with a seal. So you don't really know for sure where they're getting the disease from, but they're saying the evidence seems to show that it may be transmitting between these mammals. So that is a big jump. That's a big change for this virus all of a sudden. And like you said, there's amplifiers, right? As it gets into these mammals now, it has more of an opportunity for that reassortment, for amplifying, for changing, and for making another jump. Now, it's still, they say, a low probability, but it is certainly not as low as it was before. And the more opportunity that it's given to um, to spread around amongst mammals, the bigger opportunity it will have to possibly make that jump to humans. 
Yeah, as you share that, there's a couple of things that are kind of echoing in my mind. One is that as we started to follow this, we saw that each article that was saying, hey, found 700 dead seals in this area or whatever, always made sure to say the probability of this being transmitted to humans is very low. Uh, but just recently, we saw a statement from the World Health Organization saying, let's not discount the probability of this. Yeah, they said up to this point, it's been low, but we can't assume it's going to remain that way. Yeah. So that to me is very alarming. I combine that with something else that you mentioned, which is that the mortality rate is what you said, like 56%. Yeah. So I think of COVID and it was very contagious, right? It, it it was infecting lots of people, but the mortality rate was relatively low. I can only imagine if something was just as infectious or even more so spreading like wildfire and it had that high of a fatality rate. Yeah. Yeah. And there, as these viruses mutate, you don't know what they're going to do, right? It's very possible and very likely that as it mutated, that that um, CFR would lower, that case fatality rate wouldn't be 60%, right? Um, it's also very possible that it's not actually currently 60% because maybe people are catching it and we don't know that, right? It's just being discounted as a regular flu. And so maybe the actual mortality rate is lower. But really, it, that doesn't matter, right? If I've heard varying numbers about COVID and because the reporting and, and the way we've done our numbers has been pretty bad, <laughs> it's hard to say what the actual CFR um, is for COVID, but it, it could range anywhere from less than a percent, maybe up to like 2%. And so even if, uh, even if, if this virus were to jump to humans, H5N1, and was a 10%, right, or a 20%, Still, we are talking about something that is just so much worse um, to have that many people dying. We saw what COVID did to the healthcare system, to supply chains, to all these different things. I cannot imagine a disease that kills 5 to 10 to 20% of the people that it infects. Um, so the one value you talked about was how how much it spreads. It's referred to as an R-naught value. So basically... How many people does one infected person infect on average? They say that amongst birds, it's like R100. So birds are just spreading this thing like crazy, right? So if it were to make a jump to humans, is it spreading that bad, right? In order to transmit in humans, it would have to have the ability to to, to transmit via aerosols, which it doesn't right now. Um but that would make it more contagious. If it maintained that type of spread with the mortality rates that we're talking about, even if they were low, I mean, it, yeah, the, the consequences of that are just epically bad. And you combine that with, with the state of things, uh, like we mentioned around the perception of pandemics. I just can't see people taking it seriously enough. I don't see governments shutting everything down again I, I would think it would get to a point where they would have no choice with how many deaths would be would be happening. But would people listen to that? Or would you have, in the U.S., for example, a third of the country saying, 
no way you're, you're taking away my freedoms again. I simply won't let it happen. Yeah. And that speaks to one of the big concerns I have. If this happens anytime soon, which is that everyone has this pandemic fatigue. Like everyone's so tired of it. It got to a point where, uh, you know, even people that were taking the highest of precautions were like, ah, I, it's more worth the risk to me than it was before because I just can't handle all of this. Right. So I think, uh, there are so many implications of it. One thing that we haven't mentioned about these, uh, you know, bird flus, uh, is that that's where a lot of these other types of flu have started. Like we talk about the swine flu scare from however many years ago. And that started out, it came from birds. Right. Um, and so the, that's alarming. Uh, I also think about the fact that we haven't mentioned this. Birds travel a lot. <laughs> they, they travel a lot and they travel far. And that's one of the reasons why there's so much potential here with something like a bird flu. You know, if there's some species of lemur that's like isolated to Madagascar, like they get infected by a certain type of disease, it's probably not going to spread around. Right. But uh, birds are always migrating long distances. Uh, and so that's one other way that this becomes particularly dangerous. You know, in all of this, we talk about the, the impact to humans, which is something that, I mean, when we talk about collapse, that's typically what we're referring to. But even if this doesn't make a jump to humans, even if it just became transmissible between mammals and that spread, I mean, we're talking about mammals, animals in general, that are becoming endangered thanks to humans, right? Um, they say that the, the population, the global population of birds, the estimates range pretty widely, but they kind of seem to settle around 50 billion birds globally. Um, 70% of those are like domesticated, um, farmed birds for food and eggs and all of that. 30% of birds are wild. So you think about that, that's 35 billion birds that we've crammed into cages all over to factory farm and 15 billion birds that are out, uh, in the wild. Well, we've talked about 50 million dying so far in just the last year or so from bird flu. That's one out of every thousand birds in the entire world dead. So, I mean, it's not a small thing. And then if you consider, again, um, the same thing with, with other mammals that are already being put under so much pressure by us, this is a catastrophe waiting to happen for biodiversity and ecosystems. And that in turn is a, is a travesty. It's a, it's a, a danger for humans. We rely on those ecosystems for our survival. So you can look at it from just the the loss of animal life and how that should be unacceptable all on its own. Um, the fact that it's our fault for allowing it to spread so much because of the factory farming that we do. And then you look at the loss of uh, potential mammals. Um, they've found now bird flu in at least, I think, approaching 20 different mammals. Um, and many of those in North America as well, bears. Um, I just saw an article today about bobcats. We talked about the seals, um, the mink. And here's the thing. Um, studies have been done in the past 
I think it was over a decade ago that this study was done, they wanted to see if they could get the uh, the H5N1 virus to spread between ferrets. And it didn't take them long. They were able to achieve an aerosol transmission between ferrets, um, just allowing the virus to uh, to mutate on its own. Ferrets have a very sim- uh, similar respiratory system as humans do. They say that um, ferrets and pigs are kind of the ones to watch because if they can transmit between those animals, they're most likely to then be able to jump to humans. And so to see that it didn't take that much for them to make that happen in ferrets um, just makes me think that uh, in the end, the it's it might just be a matter of time, matter of if, not when, as long as we allow it to continue to propagate amongst birds and mammals in the wild. Yeah. So as, as we talk through all of this, I think on one hand, like even if it doesn't affect us directly as humans, like you said, it's just a tragedy that so many animals are dying. That alone should call our attention. And that that's sad. But even in like best case scenario for humans, as it, as these animals are dying, uh, you know, we've seen what that's doing to like inflation in the prices of chicken and eggs. And like, that's, that's a major food source for us. So that's going to have economic impacts. You think about, uh, what that does, not only for the consumer as we're purchasing those animal products, but also entire industries that are built around that. Right. And that has a ripple effect on the economy. You can only imagine if this starts to infect other forms of livestock and and the devastating impact that would have from an economic standpoint. Uh, that's almost like bare minimum. We're already seeing some of those impacts. Yeah. But then there's this potential that it could actually infect humans and, and spread from human to human and how devastating that would be. So... There are so many different levels of this. Um, a lot of it is just unknown. You can't you can't predict if a virus will actually mutate uh, into a way that it's going to be that much more damaging. But like you said, the probability increases. More infectious diseases are emerging. Uh, this one in particular is having more and more chances to mutate. So it's very speculative. We're not saying like oh, this year we're going right. to get hit with another pandemic. Not at all. But could be this year, could be next year, could be five years, 10 years, 30 years from now. Who knows? But this is uh, something to keep on our radar because the likelihood of it only continues to increase. Yeah, it's we're not trying to fear monger, right? We're not saying that this is going to happen, but it's it's on my radar. I'm watching it and I'm watching it pretty vigilantly. Um, the main things I'm watching for are confirmed or increasing numbers of mammal to mammal transmission. If it were to start spreading more widely amongst mammals at that point, the, the probability has gone up widely. Right. And then again, specific mammals. Um, if it's made jump to domesticated mammals that are in constant contact with humans, like pigs on farms or, or ferrets in ferret farms, um, I would probably really start to get nervous about that. It's unknown exactly what the solution would be 
you know, what steps would be taken and what steps we can take individually. There are some knowns. There's a vaccine for um, the current version of H5N1 uh, available, right? Problem is, is it's hard to scale up and make enough of those available to people to um, in, in a relatively low amount of time. They say it would take at least six months to get enough doses available for everybody. And then knowing that not everybody would take it, there's a significant portion of the population that wouldn't. And then knowing that just like the flu, they have to create a new version every year. That's right. It mutates. That's right. So it's kind of like coronavirus where we could be continuously living with it but at a much higher mortality rate. So anyway, I guess I just say that to say um, there are things that can be done, right? Masking. If you don't mask now, it might be a good time to start. Um, I mean, it would definitely be a good time to start with coronavirus still running rampant. Um, you know, stocking up on um, enough masks for if there's another panic and they run out basic hygiene, cleaning, all the principles that we learned about with COVID-19, those should be maintained forever. One of my favorite things about COVID-19, if there can be a favorite thing about a global pandemic, was the fact that the next winter, there was like hardly any flu or RSV because people were social distancing, because people weren't going out as much, they were wearing masks, there was protocols in place. And while not everyone did them, Enough people did them to make a difference. And now this year, it's stopped, right? Everybody just gave up. And we've had the worst flu, the worst RSV. My children have not stopped being sick for like four months. It's awful. And so anyway, if we can just kind of keep those protocols in place, use caution, um, that's going to be the number one step, I think, to, um, to being prepared for something like that. And then, you know, we saw what the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic did to the economy. So preparing in any way possible to not have to leave your house for a while if necessary. Um, but it, in all reality, if, if a H5N1 pandemic really took hold with a high mortality rate and a high RO uh, or R0, then I, I don't think there's much that any individual person could do to avoid the, the catastrophe that would befall humanity. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.